Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Amen. Thank you, Rochelle. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, I promise you I'm not going to sing again. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we can continue, or really kind of get into the beginning of this journey that we are taking through the gospel, the gospel of John. Today our text will be verses 1 through 5. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Hopefully you've found your way in your Bible or on your digital device to John chapter 1. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you again that you are all sufficient. That Lord, no matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances are, that you are enough. We ask you to help us to live in light of that truth, Lord. And this morning, as we endeavor to understand your word, the truth of it, that you would open our minds that we may be able to comprehend the truth of it, that you will use your word to sanctify us as your word is truth and you sanctify us by that truth and that you will implant this word in our innermost being and it will change the way we live, change the way we think. It will strengthen our faith in you and strengthen our resolve to be faithful to you. And as always, Lord, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you remember from our last time together, we had a little introductory uh, sermon on John's purpose for writing this gospel. And we learned that John is unique in that while it has some elements that are um, similar to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that it is distinctly and intentionally unique. You remember, John, at the end of this gospel, tells us in chapter 20, uh, from the sermon we learned last week, that many things, Jesus did many things that were not written in this book. But he says, these things, these things that I have written, the implication is, I chose them on purpose, and I chose them for a purpose, that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and that he is the Savior of the world, and that your faith will be strengthened because of it. And so, John, 
doesn't disappoint. Matthew kind of starts with this lengthy genealogy showing to his Jewish audience that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the heir to the throne of David, the promised Messiah that is to come. Mark, on the other hand, he starts right at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus, and he takes us on a fast-paced journey to get us to the cross. And then Luke, again, is more intentional and methodical because he has written what he has written to verify the things that Theophilus had heard and learned about Christ. And he has been, of all of them, the most like a historian in his gospel. And now to paraphrase Dr. Al Mohler, John, on the other hand, walks into the room, pulls his pen on his theological hand grenade, tosses it in the middle of the room, and says, now do I have your attention. He starts off with a theological bang And everything that he says after this prologue, the first 18 verses, he wants us to see everything he says through the lens of this prologue that we're about to begin to unpack. And so today, we will endeavor to tackle the first five verses. Hopefully, we we will set a pace. I've already told you it's going to be about two years. There's no way around that. I'm just hoping that it doesn't take longer than two years because, you know, I have a tendency to get bogged down sometimes in some text. So we're going to try to stay on that clip to get this done in two years. And so our first task is to try to get through verse 5 today because we could spend all morning on verse 1. And then we could spend the next Sunday on verse 2. You understand what I'm saying? If we wanted to do that. Well, we're going to try to... Uh, expedite just a bit. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and really going very, three very simple headings that uh, we're going to go at it from. One is before the beginning. That's verse 1. Then verses 2 and 3, in the beginning. And then verses 4 and 5, after the beginning. And hopefully that'll make sense to you as we go through uh, this text. So let, let's get going. First, before the beginning. And I say that for a reason. I know how it starts. And we'll read it again. In the beginning is what the passage say. In RK, in beginning, quite literally from the Greek. And I'll go ahead and warn you, at least in these first few verses, we are going to be Greek heavy, okay? Because I think it's important for us to understand what John is saying to us in, in light of the original language because there are some issues that come about people trying to finagle this language later on. And we'll bring, we'll bring that out as we go. But there, there's an issue in the, in the syntax, and some people bring this to light to prove the point about John mentioning to us that Jesus, as we will learn, this logos, was prior to in the beginning. And the reason is, and again, not, not to bore you too much with grammar, but it's important. The reason is 
the, the phrase that we have three words in, in, the, in the English in the beginning is two words in the Greek, in, arche. In is the preposition, and arche is the word for beginning or ruler, it can be. Uh, but there's no definite article in that phrase. So in the English, we add the word the or the to make sense of it in English. Because in beginning just doesn't sound grammatically correct in English, right? Well, the other part of that phrase that we'll talk about in just a moment was the word enhalagos has the definite article. Now, here's what happens in Greek. In the Greek, they use the definite article in places we wouldn't use it in the English. And then in places we would use it, sometimes they don't have it. And you have to supply it. But there's a particular reason sometimes that that happens. And so there's this idea of quality versus the idea of identification. And that'll become important as we get later on in this verse. So the logos we'll read about in a moment is a particular identification of a particular person. And we'll flesh that out in a minute. So it's important that the article is there, the definite article is there. When the definite article is missing sometimes, it can mean a qualitative sense. So instead of saying in the beginning, as it comes across in English, some have suggested it might be more appropriate to say in beginnings, which lends to, I think really that's the, that's the context in which John is writing this. That's what he's trying to get across to us, that this logos, whoever it is, was there prior to Genesis 1.1. Now, we obviously, when we read it in the beginning, we automatically go to Genesis 1.1 because in Genesis 1.1, we read in the English the very same words, right? In the beginning, God. Well, here, in the beginning was the word. So in the Hebrew, it's literally talking about that point in time when God was making this universe. In the beginning, God created. Here, is, John is making the point that before that moment in time, the Logos was already there. The Logos was already present before the creation took place. And I think the Bible bears that out in other places. Psalm 8, through 23. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Now, in, in that psalm, it is wisdom, okay? And, and a lot of people attribute that concept to Christ. And that's why I chose that as a cross-reference. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And then look at what Paul says in Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. <coughs> so Paul, biblically, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this concept, this idea that Christ was there is a biblical concept. And Paul, or John, is starting with that idea. He's starting to help us frame this, this mindset, this theological truth, that what we're going to learn, who we're going to learn is Jesus Christ, this Logos, is in fact eternal. He's all, he didn't start in Bethlehem. 
And he's going to remind us that this is not God's plan B. God didn't react to sin and then send the Son. What he's saying is the Logos, the Son, Jesus Christ, existed eternally. And this has always been God's plan A. All right, we're going to move on. The next phrase. In the beginning, what's the word? Ain halagos. Now, we can think about this word logos. Why is it? This word in the English is word. Uh, so why is it that John chose this particular word, logos, to describe what he's talking about that was in the beginning? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a sea of information about this word. But I want to nutshell it for you. I think two reasons that John chose this particular word. One is from a Greek perspective, because for Greek philosophers, this idea of logos, it can also mean reason, right? Um, in a sense, wisdom, logic. So in the Greek mind, in the Greek philosopher's mind, it was this concept of logos that shaped the very creation around us, that brought uh, conformity to the creation around us, that sustained the idea of the creation around us. It is what is the essence of the, the, the soul of humanity, this particular idea of logos or reason. In Greek philosophy, if you go back and study, you'll see how that bears out through time. So they were, they were seeking this logic and this reason as the ultimate cause and sustaining force for the universe. So John is saying to you Greek people, right? Just like Paul did with, in, in, in uh, uh, Athens when he was there and he saw the statue to the unknown God. He says, hey, I noticed you got this statue to this unknown God. Let me tell you who that is, right? And so John is doing a very similar thing, I think, for these Greek-thinking people. He's saying to them, hey, you've been looking for the Logos. You've been looking for this reason, this thing that you say is so significant to the universe around you. Well, let me tell you who that is. And then to the Jewish mind, Logos is not just a Greek thing. It correlates to the Word of God. And how many times when we go through the Old Testament did we hear that by the word of the Lord he done this, right? As a matter of fact, when you go to creation, what does it say? God said, let there be light. And there was light. How many times on Sunday school, in Sunday school when we're going through Jeremiah, it says, this is what the Lord of armies has said, right? And so in the Greek mind, this idea of the word of God was associated closely with the person and the being of God. And so to the Jewish mind, John is saying, you have this affinity for the word of God, the power of the word of God that brought all things into existence. Let me tell you who that is. And so I think John on purpose chose that particular word to speak to both of those audiences. Now, if we're not careful, we might come away with this idea that this may be a personification. Like in Psalm 8, wisdom was personified. And personification is adding, you know, speaking of you know, an emotion or an idea in human forms or human terms. Well, we might think that this word is just a personification, 
of the idea. But John makes it explicitly clear that this is not a personification. This is a person. This is a person. Then look, the next phrase in our text tells us that. Listen, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now that's a distinction from God. God in this context is God the Father. So this is more than a personification. He's saying with the Father is this other person. As a matter of fact, uh, again, to bore you with the Greek, kaihalagos pros ton theos. Pros is the preposition. It means to or toward. So the logos, the word, in quite a literal sense, was face to face with God. And we learn later on when we read Hebrews and we read Paul and we read Romans, that this Logos, this Jesus, is the exact image of God, right? He is the exact replication and manifestation of God in this world. If we want to know the Father, what did Jesus say? Then look to me and you see the Father. And so this is a person who was face to face with God. And listen to what Jesus, John verifies this later on in in the gospel. In chapter 17, when Jesus is offering up his prayer, this is the Lord's prayer in John 17. Listen to what he asks the Father. Incidentally, if Jesus has not always existed, if he's not a distinct person, if, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, if Jesus and the Father are in, in essence essentially the same being, that there is no second person of the Trinity, there is no third person of the Trinity, then who is it that Jesus is praying to? If it is in fact the Father who came down and walked among us, who is it that Jesus the Son is praying to? So, verse 17, chapter, five, uh, chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, Jesus says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the worlds existed. Isn't that what John just got through saying? What? That he, the Logos, was with God. And John clarifies that for us, and he makes the point that I've been making, that this Logos existed before God said, let there be light. Before Genesis 1, 1. Now, Martin Luther said this way, and this is David Kuzik quoting Martin Luther. Martin Luther says that this phrase, the word was God, with God, is against Arius. Now, you may not even know who Arius is, right? Well, there is a heresy that's known as Arianism. Now, we're not talking about, sometimes you can confuse that with, you know, the white supremacy stuff. No, this is Arius, and Arius was a forced century priest in Alexandria, Egypt. And what Arius taught was that Jesus was not God, that he was not divine, that he was not eternal, that he was a creation of God. As a matter of fact, the first created act of God was for him to create Jesus. And that is a heresy. And so you and I need to guard against that. If we read the Gospel of John, hopefully it will prepare your mind to guard against this truth. And you might say, well, who in the world believes that today, right? Well, I'll tell you, at least two groups of people who believe that today. 
And you may have friends that are part of these two groups of people. And both of them consider themselves as Christian groups of people. But according to God's word, they are not. They are a cult and they believe heresy. And that's Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. Because both of them believe that Jesus was a created being. Jehovah's Witness believe he was created as Michael the archangel. And that he came and done what Jesus uh, claimed to do. Mormons believe that Jesus is just one of many spirit children of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And that Jesus and Satan are brothers because they're spirit children of the Father. And all of you are spirit children of the Father according to uh, Mormons. And we don't have time to get into Mormon theology, but there are two groups that are against what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. So hey, greatest family commercials on television come from the Mormons, right? And there's a reason for that. We don't have time to get into this morning. But you need to understand that your friendly neighborhood Mormon is lost and dying and going to hell if they believe Mormon theology. Because Mormon theology doesn't believe the biblical Jesus. And the same thing for your Jehovah's Witness friend. They are lost and dying and going to hell. They do not believe the biblical representation of Jesus. They do not believe what John has just told us about Jesus Christ. And so he goes even further. He doesn't stop there. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now here's where Jehovah's Witness change the language in their translation of the Bible. They will render that Greek in English to say that the word was a God. You remember we had this discussion about the definite article earlier? And the definite article was missing in NRK. There was no the in the beginning in the Greek. Well, here there is no the, there's no definite article before theos, which is God. But you and I need to understand that this theos in verse 4 is going back to the ton theon in uh, our, I say verse four, it's point number four on my, on my outline. This is verse one, it's the fourth phrase in verse one. So this, this theos is referring back to the ton theon in the third phrase, which, and the word was with God. In the Greek, there is a definite article before God, meaning that John is identifying a specific God, the one and only true God. And this theos is referring back to that theos. So it doesn't have to have the definite article in front of it. And the Greek doesn't have an indefinite article. We have the word a or an, which is an indefinite article. And we have to add that sometimes for our language to make sense. The Greek didn't have any concept of an indefinite article. So if it's in your English translation, it's because it was added there so it would make sense for you. And there's no reason to add it here because the context demands that John was saying that whoever this Logos is, not only was he with God, this God that he's already identified, that he is, in fact, this God. And we're going to learn that this Logos is Jesus Christ in the next few weeks, right? So he's saying to us that Jesus, the Logos, is God, is Yahweh. That's the theological bomb that John drops at the beginning of this gospel. The other gospels work that in along the way, but John starts with it. 
And he says, listen, here you go. Now deal with it. Everything I'm about to tell you is in light of this single solitary truth that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? John is mincing no words. And the word, the logos, was God. Now, again, Luther, this goes against the heresy called Sabellianism. All right? Sabellius, he was a third century uh, priest or bishop um, from Rome. And Sabellius, I, I say he's the father of oneness theology. Now, you might not know what oneness theology is, but oneness theology is against the Trinity. They don't believe in a triune God. They believe that there is only one God, which we believe. We're monotheistic. There's only one God. We believe the Bible reveals to us that that one God is manifest in three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say no. They say that when Jesus was on earth, that was actually God the Father who was on earth because that's the only one. God the Father came down. And so there's a different manifestation. God the Father manifested himself in a different way. Now you say, well, who in the world believes that today, right? Well, you, there is a group called Oneness Pentecostals. I got an aunt who goes to a church that is Oneness Pentecostal. She sent me some tapes one day and wanted me to listen to them. And after the first two minutes, I said, these people are her heretics because they are Oneness Pentecostals. Now, I didn't break her heart, right? I should have, but I didn't. One of, one of the probably prominent names that you know, at least one time, and I don't know if he still believes this, but at least one time, T.D. Jakes was a Oneness Pentecostal. He didn't believe in the Trinity, right? So there are people out there who still believe this heresy. But you and I have to hold on to this fact that there is only one God, but that one God biblically has shown us that he, he made himself known in three persons. There is, there is one being of God, but three persons who make up that being of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Father is not the Son and He's not the Spirit. God the Son is not the Father and not the Spirit. God the Spirit is not the Son and not the Father, but they're all equally eternally and equally divine and equally God. That's why Paul can write the way he does in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind that's in you, that's in Christ Jesus, right? He thought it not robbery to grasp equality with God. Why not? Well, because he was God, right? And the Bible clearly teaches that. Now, hey, before we get on our high horse and say, man, I believe that, I know that, we may have been guilty of Sabellianism in our own lives. Let me tell you how. Because of how we try to explain the Trinity, and in particular, how we try to explain the Trinity to children. Because we try to dumb it down, for lack of a better way to put it, right? We try to tell them, well, think of the Trinity like this. Hey, I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm an uncle, right? Well, that's Sabellianism. Because what am I saying? Well, I, there's three manifestations of who I am. That's heresy. Or we might say it like this. Well, think of the Trinity like water. You got ice, you got the liquid, and you got the steam. Well, that's heresy. 
So if you use that illustration with your children, you're teaching them heresy because it's the same substance, but it's only manifest in three different ways. It's not three distinct elements, right? And even the egg analogy. If you've used that, that's heresy. Here's what I need to say to you. There is no simplistic, pithy way to explain the Trinity. There is only the truth of it. And the best that we can do is know the truth of it and state the truth of it and trust God to help us understand it to the best of our ability. We can't dumb it down. We can only speak it the way God says it, the way God reveals it, okay? And we must hold on to that truth or everything we believe falls to part, falls to pieces because the Trinity is evident in Scripture. It is evident in the New Testament in particular. And so John makes that very clear. And everything that John has just told us in these five verses and what he's going to tell us in the, in the, in the next uh, few verses we go through, all the way to verse 18, he wants us to view everything he's saying through this idea that G this Logos is, in fact, the one true and living God who became flesh and lived among us. It is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. All right, very quickly, in the beginning. Now, we come to that point in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, let there be light, and there was light. John says to us, and you could really put verse 2 with verse 1 because it, it kind of rounds out everything we just read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he reiterates that he was in the beginning with God. Now, there is an, an emphatic aspect to this that we don't pick up in the English. In the Greek, it is the word uh, hutos, all right, or haltos, depends on your translation of it. And it can literally be translated, this one, meaning this logos that I've been talking about, this one was in the beginning with God. And so he's making an emphatic point that this very person I've been talking about, this is the one that was in the beginning with God when everything that is was created. And so he goes on in this passage, all Things were made through him. Whoever this Logos was, John is telling us, who was in the beginning with God, who was God, this one, everything that you see around you in this world and in this universe, it is through this Logos, it is by this Logos that it was created. He is the, he is the one who spoke these things into existence. And the Bible ver verifies it. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for, from whom all things and for whom, from whom we exist, for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul is echoing the exact same thing that John is saying to us. In, in the prologue of his gospel. So this Logos, this one was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And then John even becomes more emphatic with this statement. Look at what he says. 
And without him, meaning without this one, without this logos, without him was not anything made that was made. And again, there's an emphatic element to this in the Greek that we don't necessarily pick up in the English because you have the negation deude, which is a compound word. De means and or but. And uk is the first part of that word, which means not. So really, it can almost literally be translated and not. And then the next word in the Greek is hen. Uh, we'd spell it in English, H-E-N, which is the cardinal number one. And so John is saying, and not even one thing that was made was made without this logos. Nothing in this universe came to be unless Jesus is the one who created it. This logos was in the beginning with God. He is eternal. He is divine. This logos was face to face with God. This logos is the one who created everything there is around you. This logos is the one speaking in Genesis chapter 1. Is what John's saying to us. But it's powerful and that's profound. Because what good thing can come from Nazareth, right? Well, let me tell you what good thing come from Nazareth. That's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the creator of everything that there is around you and you yourself. Listen to what Paul says again. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There is no doubt that the Bible, that John, that Paul is teaching us that Jesus is God and he's the creator of this universe. Now, if John is right, and I believe he is, if John is right, then that means there is a creator and that he created everything around us, right? If John is right, then the current scientific theory that teaches us how this world and universe came to be is absolutely wrong, right? You can't have it both ways. Let me give it to you this way. Put on your thinking cap, okay? Ask yourself this question. Did the universe have a beginning? You can answer it two ways. Either yes or no. And both of those answers have their own consequences. If you answer this the question, this universe had a beginning with yes then you believe that there was a time when there was nothing. Correct? If it had a beginning, then at one point there was no universe. And then a universe came to be. And you got to ask yourself the question, how? Because that absolutely violates the first law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics says that the energy in this universe is constant. That there's never more or there's never less. Now it can change from one form of energy to another form of energy. But it is always constant. And so if you say that there was a time when there was no matter and no energy, 
How did we get matter and energy? Because it violates the very law of physics. Well, there's an answer to that. It's called a miracle. And there was a God who said, let there be a universe. Now, if you say no, that the universe didn't have a beginning, then you believe that the universe <clears throat> is eternal. That is, it has always existed, that there never was a time when it was not. Well, you got another problem because that violates the second law of thermodynamics because the second law of thermodynamics deals with the idea of entropy. Look at it this way. Good example. I've heard, that I heard this from one of those doctor science people. And he illustrated it this way. If you get up in the morning, you brew yourself a pot of coffee. You pour that pot, that coffee into your coffee cup. You grab that coffee cup with your hand. You feel the heat of that coffee cup. You know intuitively that that coffee was just brewed and that cup of coffee was just poured. Because what happens if you hold it long enough or sit it on the counter long enough? You'll come back to it and it'll be cold. The energy, the heat energy that was in that coffee dissipates. Right? That's the second law of thermodynamics. So if you believe the universe was eternal, then every star we see at night should have already burned out an eternity ago. How do we get around that? Well, there's an answer to that. It's a miracle. There was a creator who said, let there be light. There was a God. There was a, a, an unmoved prime mover who existed before this universe ever came to be. And he spoke out of nothing something. And that takes a miracle. Now, the scientists don't want to believe that, but they're in the same place we are. Right? When it comes to this beginning of the universe, they're in the same place we are. You got to take by faith how it got here. And I believe God did it because that's what he told me he did. And I trust him. So, listen to me. When you go into this world, don't be afraid of that. I know our school system has indoctrinated our children for decades on this one issue. But I'm telling you, you cannot believe in Darwinian evolution. You cannot believe in the scientific world's way of telling us the universe came into existence and believe what God says in his word. Don't you remember the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment demands that God created this world in six days because he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why? You're going to work six days and rest on the seventh. Why? Because God created this world and everything in it in six literal days and he rested on the seventh. Period. You may not believe it, and I can't make you believe it. But I believe God. And John believes God. And that's what John is telling us today. So, all right. Oh, man. All right. It's 11.30. One more point. We'll be done. Uh, after the beginning. Very quickly. Look what he says. In him was life. Now, this life was eternal life. We'll learn that from John. John 3.16. For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have 
eternal life. That's the life he's talking about. In him was life. And this life, this eternal life, was the light of men. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because of the next statement. What did this light do? This light, this, this light that came in Christ Jesus, this one who brought eternal life, this light shines in the darkness. Now, we don't have time to dive off into that. We'll dive off into it later on, okay? But we've already, we've already run across this, this, this river in, in Romans. Men walk and grope in the darkness of sin. Humanity walks and gropes in the darkness of sin. Jesus, this Logos, God himself, comes and he brings life and light to the darkness of sin. And he says, and the darkness has not, depends on your translation. I think the King James has comprehended the ESV and many of the modern translations have overcome it. Well, here's the idea. It could be either or, but I think the context and what John says later on uh, uh, in his gospel verifies this idea of overcoming it. For the longest time, I thought it was, hey, that these people, the light came into the world. Jesus came into the world. He shone his light in the darkness and they just could not grasp hold that he was the truth. But I don't think that's what John is saying because of what he says later on. Because in, in the Bible, it tells us ultimately to walk while we have the light so that the darkness does not overcome us. Well, it's the same word. Um, and again, I don't, I don't want to get into Greek. I don't have time to do that. But the word can have this idea of grabbing hold of it and making your own. Or it could have this idea of seizing it to, to bind it and, and overcome it in that way. And here's the idea behind this picture. You, you think about it. When you, when, if every light went out and we didn't have any street lights and we, it, it was a cloudy night and you were sitting in this room, you probably could not see your hand in front of your face in the dark. But if somebody took just a match and struck that match and held that match up, while it wouldn't dispel every aspect of darkness in this room, it would change the dynamic because that little match would overcome the darkness around you, wouldn't it? Think about this eternal flare of a light that came into this world. And the world cannot snuff it out. As hard as the world tries to snuff out this light, it can't snuff it out, right? And this light continues to shine in the darkness of this world today. And he says, this light shone in the darkness and the darkness can't put it out. And the life was the light of men. This light shines among us. The question is today, are you still groping in the darkness of your sin? God sent the light. Will you come to the light? Will you come to the one who can bring you eternal life? Or maybe you're here today and, and you are a believer. You've accepted Christ. You've bowed your knee to him as Lord and Savior. But you have been so influenced by the world that you don't believe everything the Bible says about creation or about God. Maybe today, ask God to help you 
see the truth of what John is saying to us and that you with boldness stand up for the truth of God's word. And don't let this world put you on the defensive. Far too long, we as believers have been on the defensive. Let us go on the offensive and say, this is the truth and it is the hope that you need. If you don't believe it, I can't help that. But it doesn't change the fact that this is the truth. And as long as I have breath in my body, I'm going to speak this truth, no matter what the world thinks. That's how we change the world. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your word and just for the truth of it and the power of it. And Lord, oh, I feel like I rushed it too much in these five verses today. There's so much richness about who you are and what you've done that was set before us. Lord, through the person of the Holy Spirit, anchor us in this truth. Lead us into this truth. Help us to live in light of this truth. Lord, for those who are lost today, I beg you to open their eyes that they may see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they may find the eternal life that he has. You be with us in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.